I'm excited for today's show because we have our very first guest, and the topic we're going to tackle today is a subject that doesn't really get much attention, women of color and infertility. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to Fertility Cafe. I'm Eloise Drain. I'm excited for today's show because we have our very first guest, and the topic we're going to tackle today is a subject that doesn't really get much attention, women of color and infertility. Stereotypes in the media and the lack of conversation surrounding Black women and infertility suggest that women of color are completely capable and able to have children whenever they're ready. Even stemming all the way back to slavery, young Black women were presumed to be extremely fertile by slave owners. However, we've learned that this is far from the truth. In fact, studies suggest that 12% of all women up to age 44 suffer from infertility, with women of color being twice as likely to experience infertility. Oddly, only 8% of them seek medical attention to treat infertility, in comparison to about 15% of white women that seek treatment. This information brings into question, why are women of color not seeking treatment? And why is there so little conversation about infertility in the community? Today, we'll explore a number of explanations that help to explain the stigma surrounding infertility and how we can bring this topic to the forefront for women of color. Now, let me share a bit about my guest. Dr. Monica Best completed her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the Emory University School of Medicine. She's currently a practicing reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at Reproductive Biology Associates in Atlanta. She has personally experienced infertility and understands firsthand the physical and psychological challenges faced by couples with infertility. Her passion is helping couples through all aspects of their unique infertility journey. It gives her sheer joy to share in the excitement couples experience as they build the family of their dreams. Thank you for joining us on the Fertility Cafe today, Dr. Best. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate um, having the time to sit down and talk about some important issues. Yes, these are very important issues. And you're one of the top reproductive endocrinologists in Atlanta, and you're also African-American woman, which gives you a very unique perspective on our topic today. Um, You know, for more than 15 years, I've witnessed and experienced the lack of communication surrounding infertility in the Black community. And it's astounding that in the year 2020, we still have staggering statistics that show women of color aren't seeking the treatment that they need for infertility. So my first question to you is, why do you feel women of color are two times more likely to experience infertility as white women, but seek medical help for half as much? Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, this is... Obviously, you know, being a, a woman of color who has struggled with infertility, this is, it saddens me um, that people don't, um, aren't aware of the issues uh, surrounding infertility and don't seek care. Um, 
you know, really, you know, the surveys seem to suggest that African American women, uh, in particular, um, are about 50% less likely than uh, women from other ethnic backgrounds to actually feel comfortable broaching the topic of infertility with their care providers. So, you know, it, it really is sad um, that, you know, we, we really struggle in complete silence and don't actually feel comfortable even broaching the topic. You know, if we, if we don't bring something up, if we don't address a problem, then, you know, no one knows how to fix it for us. We, we tend to be very spiritual people, you know, as African-American, as African-Americans, as am I. Um, but I think infertility should really be viewed um, just like any other medical problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, I think, God in our lives. And, you know, we hear people like our moms and our grandmothers telling us, baby, just pray about it. If it was meant to be, it would be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like any other health care problem like diabetes or high blood pressure, we have to talk about it. We have to tackle it like we do any other health problem, you know, and, and actually do something about it, um, you know, um, in, in these cases. So, Do you think another reason, too, is that from, you know, when we were young, we were taught girl, you better not get pregnant. You better not, you know, you better go to school. You better get your education. Pregnancy is the last thing that you should have on your mind. And it wasn't even a topic of discussion, at least not in my household. Not not in my house either. I mean, my parents told me, you know, to get my education. And then there was this open-ended, oh, well, everything else will come. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, given what I know about reproduction and infertility now, that was really just sort of the worst, worst advice. You know, I mean, we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. And over time, there's some decline in that number. And no matter how successful I am or, you know, um, however much education I get, still I have to contend with ovarian physiology. You know, so, you know, my parents were very guarded about information as it relates to reproduction. And I think it really hurts us to not have open discussions about, you know, how how to, you know, plan our families, mm-hmm. how to contracept when we are not ready to have children, but still be mindful of how ovarian physiology works and how, you know, if we are delaying childbearing, we need to be thinking about still thinking about our fertility. And, you know, if it's something that we want to be able to accomplish um, at a later time in our life, maybe thinking about fertility preservation, um, you know, and other other ways to uh, be able to guard one's ability to have the family that they want one day. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other factor, I think, for everybody, it doesn't matter what race you are, is cost. Absolutely. Which is a huge factor, especially in so many of the states where fertility care is not even something that is is paid for through insurance. And a lot of people are paying all of this out of, out of pocket. So I think cost is going to be a big factor probably for everybody across the board. Not probably, it is a factor for everybody across it the is. board. Yeah, it, it absolutely is, you know, a, a factor um, for sure. I mean, and, you know, just, I mean, I think women of, you know, women of, all ethnic backgrounds are, you know, are delaying childbearing and, you know, um, you know, 
pursuing other things that sort of compete with this. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, um, it's, it's definitely an issue that's on everyone's mind, um, regardless of what your ethnic background is. Sure. Absolutely. So are there specific fertility and reproductive issues that are more prevalent among women of color than other women? Yes. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest, um, health, uh, and sort of reproductive issues that um, uh, black women uh, struggle with is going to be uterine fibroids. Um, you know, uterine fibroids are present in um, about 60% of Caucasian women. So these are common problem, common reproductive um, issues that all women deal with, but African American women have a higher rate of having uterine fibroids, and it's probably about 80%. Um, the question is, where are these fibroids located? Are they located in the, in the area of the uterus where they may impact implantation? Are they are they big enough to push on or distort the reproductive anatomy, like distorting or kinking or blocking the fallopian tubes? Um, oftentimes, even when we do surgery to remove fibroids, they leave behind they can leave behind scar tissue that that blocks the tubes or scars the tubes. Um, also, um, this scar tissue may be left behind inside of the uterine cavity that may be an impediment to implantation. So certainly African-American women are more likely to have fibroids. They're probably more likely also to have clinically significant uterine fibroids that may impact um, pregnancy and fertility. Um, you know, other, other reproductive problems um, that may be more common in African-American women and men um, is, you know, basically obesity and other medical problems that stem from obesity and that may negatively impact fertility. Obviously, the obesity epidemic is something that people of all ethnic backgrounds are struggling with, but if you look at the statistics, we may be more likely um, uh, to struggle with this. So you can have ovulatory disorders that stem from, you know, obesity, again, other medical problems that are going to impact fertility and pregnancy in women. And then we know in men, obesity can affect, um, you know, basically the viability of sperm, motility of sperm. So those are things that we need to think about. Are there signs? So if somebody had fibroids, obviously they need to really go to the doctors, but from someone who's younger or who has really no idea, is there any indication to someone to let them know, well, my, something's going on, maybe it's fibro or maybe it's something else, but there's something going on and um, I need to, you know, maybe I need to go and look for someone or seek someone out. Like what are the signs it's time to come in and see you and when someone comes in with issues what can they expect? And I yeah, know, so I, I think that's answered, a really I sent a whole bunch of questions question away, to ask. <laughs> um, just because, you know, um, understanding if there's a problem, the earlier the better, just kind of going back to what I talked about in terms of ovarian reserve and us having a limited supply and quality of eggs, you know, um, so really understanding when there's a problem, when to seek care so that you understand what the challenges are is so important. So, you know, if you are, um, if you're under 35 years of age and you've been either attempting pregnancy for a year 
Or again, it's important to read between the lines. You've been having unprotected intercourse and have not been using any contraception for a year and have not conceived. It is a good time for you to come in and and undergo an infertility evaluation. Um, If you are over 35, again, going back to that um, limited supply of eggs and also quality of eggs as we get older, in addition to the fact that you're more likely to have other reproductive problems crop up over time, you know, we give you six months to either attempt to conceive without conceiving or have unprotected intercourse without conceiving before we say, look, you know, you really need to come in and seek um, some answers as to why you're not getting pregnant. If you also are someone who, um, you know, who is, you know, is, um, you know, has uh, issues with ovulation, you know, you don't have regular cycles, um, you know, you may be someone who, uh, who may want to come in a little sooner because how can you attempt pregnancy if you're not ovulating? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so just to, you know, kind of bang your head against the wall and only have two cycles a year, you know, that doesn't make sense either. So, you know, if you've got ovulatory dysfunction or you've got irregular menstrual cycles, or, you know, if, you know, if you've, know that you've got, your partner has an issue with sperm, you know, again, those are reasons to seek care maybe perhaps a little sooner so that we can identify the challenges and get around them um, and get pregnant. I mean, I know as women, we're used to being poked and prodded at the doctor's office and Lord, don't get me started on the medieval torture <laughs> device y'all call the speculum. Exactly. <laughs> but I'd imagine there are multiple steps involved in diagnosing infertility and it's more than just an exam or blood work. Can you just walk us through the stages of diagnosis of infertility? Absolutely. So I kind of try to make things as simple as I can, you know, when patients come in for the evaluation, just so they understand, okay, what elements of this evaluation do I most care about um, and why do I care? Um, So, you know, the first thing is eggs. You know, so I, you know, the most, probably the, one of the most important things is, okay, what is the number of eggs uh, that this patient has in her personal egg bank still remaining? And what is the quality of those eggs? And basically, you know, the number of eggs we evaluate primarily in two different ways. One is we can actually do an ultrasound of the ovaries to count the number of resting eggs on the ovary, and that is a a patient's antral follicle count. Um, You know, a normal number in a normal reproductive age woman is somewhere between 10 to 20 of those eggs that I can count on the ovaries um, at any given time in any given month. Um, The other one is uh, called the AMH or anti-malarian hormone level. And this hormone is actually secreted from the cells that support resting eggs in the ovary. And the higher that number is, the better. And it gives me some idea of of the number of eggs still remaining. So I kind of pair that with that antral follicle count. Um, Your age is going to dictate what the quality of those eggs is. So it's going to give me a prediction in terms of what your miscarriage risk is. Um, with each pregnancy. Um, and so that's kind of a measure of the quality of eggs. Um, the second thing is going to be a semen analysis. 
um, for the partner. Um, you know, again, if they're, if, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a same sex couple, again, you know, there's a different sort of different guidelines for that, but still we're going to want to, we're going to want to know the same things. For example, if it's a same sex female couple, um, I'm going to want to know about the eggs. Um, if we're using donor sperm, um, then, you know, that's going to be fairly standard, um, you know, but there's, uh, there's some other information we want to know about the, the partner who's going to be getting pregnant. Um, so, of course, if it's a heterosexual couple, uh, the sperm, the semen analysis is going to be important. Um, third, um, if, uh, again, a couple with infertility comes in, I'm going to want to know, are the tubes open? And so usually we evaluate that with an HSG or hysterosalpingogram where we put dye into the uterus and we look at that dye and whether or not it spills out of the tubes uh, under x-ray guidance. Um, and so that's the gold standard for evaluating the tubes. Um, and so I'm going to want to get that information. And then the, the fourth thing is um, a careful uterine cavity evaluation. So again, because I tend to um, be able to pick up in my infertile population more polyps, which are abnormal growths of tissue lining the endometrium of the uterus, or fibroids, um, I want to get a good evaluation of the uterine cavity. And so what we do is we instill salt water inside of the cavity to bring the walls of the uterus apart so that we can scan through by ultrasound and um, be able to evaluate the inside of the uterine cavity where implantation occurs to make sure we don't have any pathology like polyps or fibroids that may interfere. So, and I know we can go from pretty much like one extreme to the next, but if you give a hundred women, you know, walked into your exam and you just did this diagnosis of infertility, can you break down maybe the percentages of how many would actually need, you know, minimal treatment to intermediate treatment to then full-on third-party assistance? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a little bit more complicated just because it really de depends on what factors are at play in terms of the couple's infertility. You know, if they, if this is a, you know, again, a heterosexual couple, the age of the female is very important as patients above age 40 um, are more likely to have um, some diminished ovarian reserve, um, you know, and may need more aggressive therapy like IVF or even egg donation um, uh, to make getting pregnant more efficient and miscarriage risk lower. Um, if there is a severe male factor, for example, which happens 30% of the time, then IVF might be recommended since the odds of a couple being able to spontaneously conceive or to get pregnant with less aggressive treatment like intrauterine inseminations, um, that their odds of success with that are going to be severely diminished. So, you know, you don't want to have a patient paying emotional or financial resources for something that's going to be um, less likely to work. Um, you know, if you fall in the 10% of reproductive age women who have PCOS, and you're less than 35 and you just have a problem making a mature egg each month or ovulating, patients in this population may be more likely to get away with less aggressive treatment like, um, you know, helping them make an egg with oral medications and then inseminations. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's also um, important to remember, you know, kind of social societal factors. Um, that are leading women to start their families later, you know, and, you know, and again, may, may need more aggressive therapy like IVF to preserve their fertility, like either by preserving embryos with IVF so that they can have the family sizes that they, that they want to have. They're getting started later in life. Um, you know, again, I'm going to be talking globally, okay, what are your family goals here? And, you know, even if they could have done less aggressive therapy, again, the worry is by the time they get back to have their next baby, because they've always wanted to have two children, again, age may be more of a factor, treatment may be less efficient. So sometimes those patients will opt for more aggressive therapy so that they're able to freeze eggs or embryos for future children. And I think too, the like one of our issues is that we all Dr. Google uh, go on Dr. <laughs> Google, and I mean, and Dr. Google could scare even the most confident of women into thinking the worst thing. You know, you can go right. on there with a, a headache and some back pain, and the next thing you know, you die of cancer. So it definitely is a big thing is to just instead of trying to figure it out on your own is to actually schedule that appointment and um, and go be seen. So I'm curious because we've been talking about the female um, infertility, but what about male factor infertility and how prevalent is infertility among men in the um, black community? And do you see... Um, hesitation from, you know, specifically black men getting them into even, you know, be willing to see a doctor? Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's important to remember, you know, as much as I talk about, you know, um, women and their ovarian reserve and being sort of this champion of increasing our awareness, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, 30% of men are going to be infertile. Um, and, um, and, and just sort of remembering some of those same dynamics that we see with African American women seeking care less than 50% of the time or, or, or not even feeling comfortable enough to discuss these issues, you know, less than 50% of the time as, as compared to their, um, you know, women of other ethnic groups. So that has to impact the ability of black men to present for evaluation and treatment because their partners don't even talk about it, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, so I think that, you know, although we don't have good data to support it, I think that one can surmise that, you know, if African-American women are seeking care, you know, um, basically, you know, uh, you know, 50% less than their um, counterparts the, of, of other ethnic groups, then black men are also um, being left out as well. Yeah. Okay. Because they're not being, it's not being brought to the attention of the provider and therefore care cannot be provided. So, um, you know, I think it's important to, again, raise awareness to not have this sense of shame mm -hmm. um, as though there's something wrong with us. 
Um, you know, cause I think that that is also a deterrent. It's like, you know, what's wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's important to understand that you're not the only one struggling, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, you know, one in eight people struggle with infertility. And again, as we get older, above 38 years old, it's one in four, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, you are not alone and just understanding, um, that it's okay to ask for help. As a matter of fact, you know, it's going to benefit you to ask for help the soon, as soon as you know there's an issue. Well, I think the other problem is, you know, there's this stigma that you can't, you can't, you, you know, you're not supposed to put your business out there and you can't really share this information with people. And, and then it's bad enough that, you know, there's family members or friends who just are completely oblivious to what's going on. And so every five minutes they're asking you, okay, well, when you, you've been married for all these years, when are you going to have a baby? And, and what, what, you know, why, why y'all waiting? And, and I think the other issue is that from when we are young, um, it's not, you know, no one talks to you about your reproductive health. No one is talking to you about, you know, when you do get your, um, as a female, when you do get your menstrual cycle and, and how that should be and what it should look like. And if you started your cycle at 12 and you were getting it every single month and then at 15, it completely goes away and you don't see it again. And you know, you haven't been sexually active. You know that, right. you know, there's no underlying cause of like, well, I didn't really do anything. I mean, why would, and, and you know, it's just like, well, I don't want to go and tell anybody, well, I'm sure it'll come back, you know? And it's just like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that's, and again, I think that's why, you know, it's really up to us to raise awareness and, you know, speak up, speak out, make sure that we're educating, you know, young women and girls about their reproductive health and presenting options, um, you know, and, and, an understanding of their body and their physiology, you know, and, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, doing the same with men as well. You know, um, again, you know, you think about the causes of infertility, 30% are female, 30% are male, 40% both, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, so when people have these aspirations of having a family and no one has taken the time to talk to them about their reproductive health, um, you know, it's, it's really sad when later on we realized that there was a window where we could have acted mm-hmm. and we just, we just didn't know. Um, and so I think that's what is so great about what you're doing is raising awareness so that, you know, um, that, that no one can say, well, I didn't, I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or I didn't know that there are resources for me. Um, you know, it's important for people not to feel alone or marginalized. And I think that that's, you know, we, um, you know, oftentimes as, as women and, and men of color, we sort of internalize that and, you know, we, we don't seek the help that we need. And so I think that's why what you're doing is so, um, important, um, you know, in terms of educating people about their, about their reproductive health and, you know, per trying to preserve our rights to have families when we're ready for them. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, and if you think about it too, just society now and in general, 
there's more and more people actually now having infertility issues than I think have ever before. Absolutely. I mean, because basically the women having their children above age 35 has gone up like 900% since 1970. So, you know, think about, you know, we've got an accelerated loss of eggs starting at age 30, and and then that increases um, exponentially after age 35. So also we see quality of eggs going down at that point as well. And so, you know, most people are, you know, just finishing with whatever their education is and they're getting into their careers. You know, as you, you know, if you think about, you know, African-American women, we are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America. You know, the statistics show it, they bear it out. And I think, again, we are, you know, we are pursuing those things sometimes at the expense of thinking about um, our physiology. You know, I mean, I know we see celebrities having children in their late 40s and 50s, but the reality is, is that much of this is through egg donation, which again is always an option. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm about women understanding all of their options um, as early as possible so that they can make the best decision for them. And now there's a new term called trimester zero, which refers to the preconception timeframe where women should start preparing for a future pregnancy and focus on preserving their fertility options. How how can young women preserve their fertility and when should they start and what, like, what steps should they take um, to do that? And how early do you think someone should actually begin? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think that there's like a considerable amount of sort of a differing an opinion around this. Um, you know, I obviously don't want to create like a fear or panic. I think, you know, if we look at kind of what happens um, starting in the 30s, um, into the mid in the early 30s into the mid 30s in terms of decline in ovarian reserve. You know, I would just say that you know I think it makes sense in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s to have a sense of what your ovarian reserve is, particularly if you have educational goals or career goals that are going to push your family building, you know, into your 30s. Um, you know, just to kind of get a sense of that, or if you don't have a partner yet. So, um, you know, the assessment of your ovarian reserve can easily be done without having to go in for formal egg count, like I was talking about before, by just getting your AMH or anti-malarian hormone level drawn. And I would say, let's do that in our late 20s. Or if we notice that our cycles are becoming irregular, even in our 20s, you know, I diagnose you know, um, you know, you know, premature ovarian failure, the new term is primary ovarian sufficiency, sometimes in women in their teens and 20s. Now, arguably, it may be, you know, by the time that's diagnosed, it's oftentimes not efficient to freeze eggs. But the point is, is to just have an awareness of your body. What is going on? Should I just go get my ovarian reserve checked? Or should I talk to my provider about what's going on with me? And, and will this impact my ability to have a family? Um, so checking your AMH, I say late 20s, early 30s, 
um, particularly if you're not, you don't have a partner, you're not ready with, for your childbearing yet, because you may want to take that window and preserve eggs for the future. Um, and so the younger you are, again, the more eggs you're going to have, the more efficient the process is because you will also have better quality eggs. You know, so if you think about what the miscarriage risk or the likelihood of having genetic, releasing genetically abnormal eggs, um, you know, at different age points, the younger you are, the, the um, least amount of time those eggs have been around and the lower your odds of releasing a chromosomally abnormal egg and that chromosomally abnormal egg leading to an embryo that's abnormal and you having a miscarriage. So at age 25, probably the risk of miscarriage is probably somewhere around 10, 15%. By age 42, that risk is probably 65%. So, again, the younger you are, uh, at the time that you freeze eggs, the more eggs you're going to have, the better the quality of those eggs. So, you know, I think, you know, doing some assessment in your late 20s, if you aren't ready yet, makes a whole lot of sense. Yep. And, and doing that AMH. Um, um, makes sense to give you knowledge of what's going on. So if you do decide to preserve fertility, you're doing it at a time where you can be most efficient. Sure. And you talked about um, the miscarriage and the older you get, the the higher there could be an issue. Um, can you talk about if someone needed to utilize a gestational carrier and the the quality of the embryos and compared to, you know, if you had a gestational carrier who was 38 years old using donor eggs and how that would look compared to a woman who's using her own genetic material and, um, uh, and carrying the pregnancy and what the difference is there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the one of the things that's most astounding to people is the uterus really doesn't age in the same way that eggs do. Okay, so we have, um, for example, we have one of the largest donor egg uh, programs in the country, and believe it or not, you know, women up to age fifty five, as long as they're healthy and they complete certain uh, medical evaluation for clearance, they can conceive up to age 55 with donor egg with me creating embryos from an egg donor who's less than 30 and potentially their husband's sperm, doing a transfer of those embryos from younger eggs even into a woman who's 50 is going to yield the same pregnancy rate and miscarriage risk as is tied to the age of the egg donor, okay? So the uterus doesn't predict pregnancy rates and miscarriage. It's actually the egg, and the age of the egg um, is going gonna, is gonna to dictate um, our, our success. So, um, so really, the, the uterus in a, a surrogate who's 38, if the eggs are, you know, 25, then that surrogate is going to have a 25-year-old's pregnancy rate and miscarriage risk. So, you know, so those things are conserved regardless of the uterus. Again, assuming the uterine cavity is normal, we don't have fibroids or polyps, again, those are things that would be evaluated. If, and okay, what, about, what so, about sperm? Um, Does that have a factor in how old the man is when it comes to creating the embryo? 
Not in the same way that we think about in terms of the age of the egg impacting miscarriage risk and pregnancy rate. Um, the, the reason why is because men generate fresh sperm from, um, from stem cells every three months of their life. So the oldest sperm is, is three months. Um, so, so men don't contribute at all to embryo quality in the same way we think about eggs because, um, our eggs have been around our entire life. There's an, there's an increased risk as we get older of those eggs being genetically injured and when they're fertilized, giving rise to genetically abnormal embryos. The same risk doesn't, uh, doesn't exist for men. Um, in terms of contributing to embryo quality, um, you know, so really it's the, it, it all gets tied into the age of the egg and that is what predicts pregnancy rates. Um, the younger the egg, the better the pregnancy rate and the lower the miscarriage risk. So can you talk a little bit about as women, um, how the eggs are produced so, yes, you know, absolutely. we are born with however many and they die off and, and so forth. Yes. So, so that's kind of the depressing thing <laughs> about being a female. You know, we have, um, have, you know, millions of eggs while we're in utero. Um, and then, you know, by the time we, we know that we lose eggs, as we get older to the point where by the time we reach puberty, we have probably about 500,000 eggs. <laughs> um, and then over the course of our reproductive life, you know, say from the age of 12 until the average age of menopause, which is 42, um, we're going to ovulate about 500 eggs in our entire life. Mm. Um, and so, you know, again, as we age, again, we see this accelerated loss of eggs around age 35 to 40. But what's happening also is, again, those eggs have been around our entire lives. And so there's some increased risk of chromosomal or genetic injury to those eggs as we get older. That leads to, again, not only an increased rate of miscarriage, but because we have fewer eggs, it's harder to get pregnant and it's harder to stay pregnant because of the miscarriage risk. So then what about those women, as you mentioned, you guys have a big um, uh, donor bank and for women who are interested in becoming egg donors, I mean, how can they be guaranteed that they would have enough eggs for when they decide that they want to have their own children? Yeah. So that's, that's really a good question. I mean, when you, when you think about how, um, you know, we, um, how a mature egg is produced each month, um, you know, again, like I mentioned before, if I were to scan the ovaries, I would see about 10 to 20 resting eggs on the ovary at any given month. Um, again, you've got thousands of eggs in your personal egg bank, um, but generally the ones that I can see are the ones that have receptors for what's called FSH, which stimulates the maturation of your eggs over the course of the month. Okay, and so what's going to happen is the brain is going to is going to release FSH, which stimulates usually about ten to twenty eggs to start to grow in any given month, 
And then usually by the end, by kind of the middle of your cycle, you're going to get an LH surge, which is going to help you ovulate your one mature egg out of those 10 to 20 that were growing at the beginning of the month. And so you're going to release that one egg, and then what's going to happen is those other 9 to 19 are going to die, okay? So they didn't vie well enough to become your one dominant egg, dominant follicle, out of those 10 to 20, so they're going to die. If that egg that gets ovulated and hopefully gets picked up by the fallopian tube doesn't end up getting fertilized there, that egg is going to die. So ultimately, what we're doing with IVF is we're giving medications to overwhelm the system so we no longer have competition among those um, 10 to 20 eggs, um, and we can stimulate the growth of all 10 of those, um, of those follicles and rescue them, okay? Because remember, they would have died mm -hmm. in your natural cycle, right? And so by giving more FSH, um, like we do with IVF, we're rescuing the remainder of those follicles. And so what we're doing is we're maturing. Um, instead of having one mature egg like in your natural cycle, we're giving injectable medications to hopefully yield 10 to 20 mature eggs. Again, only mature eggs can be fertilized. So we are not, we don't have a net loss of eggs in donors that come through that donate their eggs. All we're doing is rescuing what would have died that month. So there isn't a net reduction in someone's eggs when they come and donate their eggs um, if they're a donor, okay? So, you know, I think it, you know, it's just important for those donors, just like all women, to be mindful of their ovarian reserve and be thinking about when do they want to start their family and preserving their ability to be able to do that efficiently by understanding what's going on with their ovarian reserve. By default, women who are donors are going to have excellent ovarian reserve, but they're also going to be less than 30 years of age, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of us are going to have a good number of eggs and a good quality of eggs at that point. But, you know, donors may run into problems just like the rest of us do by waiting too long to start their family. And then overall, yeah, their number of eggs is going to decline. But the act of doing, of donating your eggs does not reduce your net number of eggs that you'll have for later. That number is going gonna, is gonna to be the same and decline as it would with age, just like everyone else. So what we've done in our donor program is, you know, we have designed it in such a way, um, if you are, you know, a good donor and you, um, and you've you've done, you know, three cycles of egg donation, on that third cycle, we will allow you to preserve some of those eggs and we will cover the cost of freezing those eggs for you for later. Um, so, which I think is, is, is great. But again, it's not because the process is going to decrease your net number of eggs that you will have for yourself later, but I think it's it's a good idea and it's really a good service to offer our donors who are doing something good for someone that ultimately will will get pregnant with their eggs. Right. 
So, Dr. Best, I know we have talked for uh, quite some bit, and I know we could probably go on and on this because there's a whole lot of other questions that keep popping in my head, and I'm like, no, uh, let me just stop here. But is there any final... We could talk forever. I know, I know. Um, but is there any final points that you wanted to kind of share um, that you think that would be beneficial for you know the listeners to know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think probably, you know, my, my, um, like I said before in this discussion, you know, I am, I feel like I am the champion for, you know, increasing awareness and education to young women. Um, you know, being a physician who also struggled with infertility myself, you know, I, I am so grateful, um, to have had the knowledge. Um, to check my AMH. Um, you know, of course, when I, I evaluated my AMH, it was low and it allowed me to be able to act. Um, and so, you know, I was able to do IVF and conceive my daughter and also able to do fertility preservation by being able to freeze eggs and embryos for later um, so that I had the option to have another child in the future more efficiently, knowing that I had started so late in the game um, because I had to go to college and then med school and then residency and then fellowship before I was ready, you mm-hmm. know. So, you know, I was already starting in my mid-30s and I just, you know, I'm just grateful for the knowledge and I think that is what I feel like is most important for us to educate and empower um, and impart this knowledge to women so that they understand and, and they can, you know, they can assess their van reserve and understand what options they have and be more efficient at building the families um, that they want to have for themselves because, you know, everybody wants it all. Um, but we have to learn how to, to, you know, as they say, walk and chew gum together, you know, focus on what our career and uh, educational aspirations are and still be thinking about how do we guard our Averin Reserve? You know, I mean, people are building, you know, um, blended families, you know, and, you know, potentially, you know, remarrying and wanting to start families anew and, you know, just having the ability to preserve fertility really leaves options for women that didn't exist uh, before. Um, Men can go restart and build and have other families, but women can't, you know. So I think up until this point, before we had the ability to preserve fertility, you know, I think you know, we, women didn't have as many options as they have, you know, um, you know, and so I think, you know, just education is so important. And again, that's why I think this, um, opportunity is, is so great. And, you know, you, um, you, um, you know, having a fertility cafe that allows us to have these discussions. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome anytime. Absolutely. So where, if someone is interested or if they're curious or if they need some help and they just like, oh, you know, maybe I should call her, where should they reach you? So, um, you know, we, um, our, our website is um, rbaivf.com. 
Um, if you uh, want to call to schedule an appointment with me, um, you can call 470-552-2624 um, or again, just visit our website um, and there is information out there for how to schedule a consultation um, with any one of our reproductive endocrinologists. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bessie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eloise. I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. That was a lot of great information, right? So let me sum it all up. To start, I think step one is raising awareness and educating women on their bodies and the potential issues they might face in reproduction and infertility. And step two is taking action. Get in women, Black, White, Hispanic, Indian, Asian, Jewish, all of the women to take the bold step to seek out answers to why they're having trouble conceiving. Taking that step can be an emotional roller coaster. Even something as simple as making the appointment can be intimidating. In a way, it's admitting that something may be wrong. It's giving into the voice that's been whispering, it should be working by now. It's acknowledging that the journey to parenthood isn't going to be as easy as it was for your girlfriends or your sister. But what if we flip the script on taking that next step? What if instead of it being a sign of defeat, it's a sign of empowerment? You spent months, maybe even years, sitting back and waiting on nature to take its course. You've been a passenger on your journey. It's time to become the driver, take control, take action. It's time to woman up and get the answers you need and deserve to make your dreams of starting a family come true. So let's crack open the vault and cast out the mystery surrounding the very first appointment with the reproductive endocrinologist and make the call. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for joining me today on Fertility Cafe. I'm Eloise Drain. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own. 